Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by the Georgia Radio Reading Service, GARS. Hello, I'm Paula Ferguson, and this is the AARP Magazine. I will begin reading from the January-February 2023 edition of the AARP Bulletin. Our first article is from Your Money, Live Well for Less by Lisa Lee Freeman, A New Way to Lower Your Grocery Costs, Bypass Picture-Perfect Foods to Save Big and Reduce Waste. As food prices surge, usual strategies like clipping coupons can stretch your dollars. But you can take your savings to another level if you're open to what's known as salvage food. Salvage food is the stuff regular supermarkets pass on. Items such as cosmetically flawed produce, dented cans, crumpled boxes, and products nearing expiration dates. Not all these rejects end up in landfills. Some turn up on supermarket clearance racks at a salvage grocery store. Grocery Outlets operates 420 stores, mostly in the western U.S., United Grocery Outlet, a different company, has three dozen stores in six southern states. Many other smaller salvage grocers operate around the country. Sites such as Imperfect Foods, Misfits Market, and Hungry Harvest offer home delivery of salvage foods. Misfits Market acquired Imperfect Foods late last year but operates it as a separate brand. And the Flash Flood smartphone app lets you buy discounted food nearing its best buy date at traditional grocers, including Giant, Martins, and Mayer. Here's a quick overview of salvage food options. Salvage grocery stores. Molly Nicole, executive director of an Asheville, North Carolina nonprofit that works with local farmers, swears by these markets. Some deals she found? Cereal for $1.98 a box, typically $5 plus in a supermarket, and organic salad dressing for $0.98 a bottle, $4.49 plus elsewhere. Tip, visit the website buysalvagefood.com to find stores near you. Before buying, check items for problems such as mold on cheese and food that's far past its expiration date. Supermarket clearance racks. When I visit my local stop and shop's scratch and dent rack, a big shelf in the back of the store, I often find items marked down by 75%. On my last grocery run, I scored bargains such as a bag of green split peas for 32 cents down from $1.29 and cans of Del Monte corn for 49 cents each, originally $1.99. Tip, don't worry about smashed boxes as long as the inner bag is sealed. Minor dings in a can are okay, but dents that are deep or along a can's seams can signal dangerous bacteria. Salvage food delivery websites. In September, I ordered items from the Imperfect Foods and Misfits Market, which both focus on organic products. Visit imperfectfoods.com and misfitsmarket.com to see if they deliver in your area. All the food was high quality, but prices were close to those of Whole Foods. Tip. Check for deals at grocery stores near you through the Flash Food app. The selection may be more limited than those of the delivery services, but the savings are worth it. Lisa Lee Freeman, a consumer and shopping expert, was founder and editor-in-chief 
of Shop Smart Magazine from Consumer Reports. And there's a animated photo inset of food products. There's a box of pasta, some cherries, carrots, yellow peppers, tomatoes, scallions, squash. There's a slightly dented can of soup and a red pepper. Also on this page, we have Great Ways to Save Credit Cards by Beth Braverman. Level down your credit card. If you're paying an annual fee for a credit card worth rewards that you don't use, call your card issuer to see if you could move to a card that's a better fit. Switching cards this way means you could avoid a credit inquiry. That's a good way to get rid of the annual fee without any repercussions on your credit, says Matt Schultz, Chief Credit Analyst with LendingTree. Look into cards with 0% teaser rates for big purchases. Many balance transfer credit cards also come with a 0% introductory annual percentage rate on new purchases, according to a LendingTree report. Such cards can provide some breathing room, often about 12 months, to let you pay off that new refrigerator or car repair over time without interest. Use automatic payments to avoid being late. In 2019, the average first-time late fee for credit card accounts was $26 and $35 for those who'd been late in the past. Plus, you instantly start accruing interest on any balance once past your monthly interest-free grace period. There's more. Late payments can ding your credit score. Avoid all these negatives by setting up automatic monthly payments, either through your bank or the credit card company, for at least the minimum amount, or set up alerts to remind you when payments are due. Stick with a single card. Look for a credit card option that earns the most possible on every purchase and stick with it for all your shopping needs. Right now, that's about 2% cash back or 2 points per dollar on a travel card, says Sarah Rathner, a credit card expert for the personal finance website Nerd Wallet. That way, whenever you use the card, you're getting a pretty good rate. Don't spend just to get a deal. Many credit cards offer discounts with conditions. Those are great if they're on things you're going to buy anyway, Rathner says. But buying something you don't need on sale is not getting a deal. And that's Great Ways to Save Credit Cards by Beth Braverman. Our next article is from Your Life, entitled, For Nursing Homes, Pandemic Challenges Haven't Ended. A Chronic Worker Shortage Has Blocked Chances for Reform and Rebound by Emily Paulin. The death of roughly one in every eight nursing home residents in the U.S. from the COVID-19 pandemic shocked America and triggered promises for change from health officials at every level. President Joe Biden, in his State of the Union address last year, vowed that federal officials would set higher standards for nursing homes and make sure your loved ones get the care they deserve and expect. But while there are glimmers of hope for a better future, the situation for many of the nearly 1.2 million residents who reside in some 15,000 nursing homes across America is worse than before the pandemic start, according to interviews with dozens of nursing home professionals, workers, and residents. In a nursing home near Dallas, resident Cindy Napolitan, 66, reports call lights going unanswered, diapers not being changed, dinners going cold at the table while residents wait to be fed, and a lack of clean towels to shower with. Late last year, she watched as it took more than two hours for nurses to start performing cardiopulmonary resuscitation on her comatose neighbor. She didn't make it, Napolitan says. 
In her almost five years of living in nursing homes, she says, care levels are the worst they've ever been. Nothing has really improved, says Charlene Harrington, a longtime nursing home researcher at the University of California, San Francisco. In fact, in most ways, residents are worse off than they were before the pandemic. The primary reason? A large-scale exodus of workers over the past three years has made worse what was already an understaffed situation in many of America's nursing homes. Today, record high staffing shortages and an unprecedented level of underqualified staff are leaving residents with even less care than before COVID's arrival. Also, the lagging rate of COVID booster shots among nursing home residents is allowing the virus to linger, causing more deaths than necessary and preventing residents from a return to regular programming. A class action lawsuit filed by AARP Foundation lawyers in September against one of the largest for-profit nursing home operations in Illinois, the Alden Group, illustrates the present state of nursing homes, lawyers say. People living in six different facilities claim Alden has intentionally provided insufficient numbers of registered nurses, certified nursing assistants, or CNAs, and other workers who provide direct care to residents. The practice has led to neglect, preventable injuries and illnesses, the lawsuit says. States set minimum staffing standards, but Alden is charged with lying on reports of staffing levels. In some cases, falsifying documents while requiring residents to sign illegal agreements preventing them from suing when injuries occur because of understaffing. I actually think these practices have gotten worse recently after the pandemic, says Kelly Bagby, Vice President of Litigation at AARP Foundation. That's why we're seeking a court order to put an immediate stop to them. Alden did not respond to a request for comment. That's not to say advocates for the nursing home industry and others are out of hope. On the federal level, what the president has proposed is much more significant than anything for decades, maybe, says Eric Carlson, an attorney at the advocacy group Justice and Aging. If there hadn't been a pandemic, would this action be happening at the level it is right now? I don't think so. Plus, there are pockets of positive change at the state level. New York, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, and others recently increased minimum staffing requirements for their nursing homes. Iowa has launched an apprenticeship program enabling high school students to become CNAs before graduation, and Illinois has pledged additional tuition reimbursement for students training in nursing home careers. Ironically, it took the disaster of a pandemic to make such potential positive change possible. And there's a graph inset, the caption, Sources, Kaiser Family Foundation, Bureau of Labor Statistics, Resident data is yearly, staff data is monthly. And we have two lines. One is the staff data and the other is the residents. Nursing home resident and staff declined since 2015. They've gone from about 50,000 prior to the pandemic down to 300,000 in a staff uh, decline and deficit for nursing homes. Richard Mallet, edit. Richard Mallet, the executive director of the Long-Term Care Community Coalition agrees. I think that COVID brought much needed attention to the nursing home sector, much more than we've seen, he says. 
I think that it's now part of the dialogue and that people really saw how much needs to be done. I think that is a good thing. We'll see. A shrinking industry. The U.S. nursing home industry has been shrinking for decades, with the nationwide resident population going from 1.6 million in 1997 to 1.3 million in 2019, even as the number of Americans over 80 has surged. Occupancy rates also dropped from 88% to 81% during the same period. The primary reason for the declines? Consumers have been increasingly opting for less institutionalized care, either in-home and community-based settings or assisted living facilities. The pandemic appears to have accelerated that decline, slashing the resident population by a further 13% and causing another 8% drop in occupancy rates. Heightened death rates in these facilities are partly to blame, researchers say, alongside the decision by many families to pull loved ones out of nursing homes once they learned of the issues they were facing. That's actually seen as good news by advocates like Harrington. Nursing homes are generally not of sufficient quality, she says. We're seeing the population narrow because people realize it's risky to go into these facilities, and I think that's for the best. Staffing has fallen at a similar pace. Between January 2020 and November 2022, the industry shed about 215,600 jobs, according to data from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's about 14% of its total workforce, a figure that far outpaces losses in other healthcare sectors. The nursing home sector is probably in the worst situation I've seen in 35 years, says Jackie Nickel. Chief of Senior Living Services at Volunteers of America National Services, a nonprofit operating more than 20 senior living communities throughout the U.S. We've had staffing stresses before, but I had no idea how bad they really could be. The mass exodus has mainly occurred among certified nursing assistants, who many refer to as the backbone of the nursing home workforce. CNAs provide around 90% of direct resident care, lifting, bathing, toileting, dressing, and feeding. In 2020, as COVID-19 cases soared in their workplaces, their job became one of America's most deadly. Poor conditions have been the norm for decades, says Sylvia Abiquay, 48, who worked in U.S. long-term care after emigrating from Ghana more than 20 years ago. COVID-19 was just the last straw, she says. She quit her role as the director of nursing at a 120-bed nursing facility in Brookline, Massachusetts, after being hospitalized with the virus following an outbreak in her workplace in April 2020. She hasn't returned to a job in a nursing facility. As workers have fled, the health of residents has deteriorated. Bed sores, weight loss, depression, and the use of antipsychotic medication, conditions commonly associated with low staffing ratios, have all increased during the pandemic, according to an analysis of federal data by the National Consumer Voice for Quality Long-Term Care. COVID-19 deaths among nursing home residents, also exacerbated by low staffing, totaled more than 160,000 as of November, according to the federal government, representing about 15% of all virus deaths nationwide. The nursing home industry is pushing back on the federal proposal to establish mandatory staffing levels, saying it's unachievable and unaffordable under current government funding. 
We would love to hire more nurses and nurses' aides. Mark Parkinson, President and CEO of the American Healthcare Association, AHCA slash NCAL, a national association of more than 14,000 nursing and assisted living facilities, said in a statement. However, we cannot meet additional staffing requirements when we can't find people to fill the open positions, nor when we don't have the resources to compete against other employers. That's likely true for some providers given Medicaid's current reimbursement rates. Research shows that these government payments, which 62% of nursing home residents nationwide rely on to fund their stays, don't cover the full cost of care in many states, leaving providers to leverage other sources of payment to offset losses. But the true state of industry is difficult to discern because many nursing home owners have lacked transparency, advocates say. Roughly 70% of nursing homes in America are for-profit enterprises. Some nursing homes report high profits and others are siphoning profits out into other companies that they own, including management and property companies, says UCSF's Harrington, who investigates nursing home finances. But we have no idea where the money is going because we don't have transparency. Before putting more taxpayer dollars into the system, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is tasked with rolling out President Biden's nursing home plan, is trying to identify unscrupulous providers pulling money out of care for profits. But it's a slow process, Harrington says. CMS recently started making ownership data publicly available, but it's not accurate or complete yet, she says. And getting it to that stage is going to take a lot of time. Until then, staffing remains sparse and complaints about residents going unchecked and unfed for hours are mounting, according to Marjorie Moore, the executive director of Voice and Advocacy Group for People Living in Long-Term Care. Across the country, the hours of care per day are just way, way, way too low, she says, and that's really scary. Underqualified care. At the beginning of the pandemic, to combat rising staffing shortages, the Trump administration issued nursing homes a blanket waiver letting them onboard nurse aides who hadn't completed the required training of at least 75 hours within four months of employment. Many states adopted a temporary nursing aid, TNA program, allowing workers to be hired after substantially less training, often only eight hours online. We brought these people in who had no idea what they were doing, Mollett says, just when residents needed high quality care the most. The Biden administration lifted the blanket waiver in June 2022, citing concern that it had contributed to poor health outcomes for residents. But extended waivers are being granted to states, counties, or facilities that can't access training or testing programs because they're either fully booked or unavailable in the area. It's unknown how many of the industry's roughly 470,000 nurse aides are currently uncertified but industry observers suggest it's the majority. I'd guess it's closer to 90% than 10%, attorney Carlson says. Despite this, the industry is lobbying to allow waiver extensions for another two years, maybe even permanently, if a study finds them effective in alleviating staffing burdens. Such extensions would prevent further devastating job losses in turn, protecting access to care for our nation's seniors, says Holly Harmon, Senior Vice President of Quality, Regulatory, and Clinical Services at the AHCA-NCAL, 
in a statement. AARP agrees and has called for a wide range of job improvements like paid leave, improved training, and increased pay to help retain staff. COVID's constant threat. One area of nursing homes that experts generally agree has seen some improvement over the course of the pandemic is COVID-19 infection prevention and control. The vast majority of the credit, however, goes to one tool in particular, vaccines. They're a miracle, says Carol Silver Elliott, president and CEO of the Jewish Home Family and nursing home provider in New Jersey. The drops in cases and deaths that vaccines spurred have allowed operators to slowly introduce daily routines which were disrupted during the public health emergency. At the Jewish Home Family Visitation Communal Dining Group activities and excursions have all come back, Elliot says. We're a whole lot more normal than we have been for a few years, so I'm grateful for that. But vaccination is not a one-and-done fix. It's an ongoing process, says R. Tamara Konetska, a professor of public sciences at the University of Chicago. And we need to keep up for it to work effectively. Recently, though, nursing homes haven't, which leaves this population on shaky ground. As of mid-November, only 45% of nursing home residents and 22% of staff nationwide were up to date on vaccines, according to AARP's nursing home COVID-19 dashboard. So, while deaths still remain way down from the heights of the pandemic, the virus is continuing to circle through many facilities, killing hundreds of residents nationally per month. It's also preventing a proper return to daily life, says Morgan Katz, M.D., an infectious disease expert at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Many of the facilities I work with are on outbreak status on a regular basis, she says, which restricts residents' freedoms and schedules. That's why it's so important to capture the moment created by the pandemic and harness public outrage, health professionals and advocates say. And there are some signs that this is happening. What we need is really a lot of political will, Konetska says. There's probably more political will right now than we've seen in decades, so that's good. Journalist Emily Powlin has been covering nursing homes for AARP.org since the pandemic start in 2020. And we have another graph. It's a COVID-19 deaths among nursing home residents. The source is the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and we have starting in May of 2020, we've seen a rise in deaths up to about 160,354 as of November 2022. Then we have help from AARP. Our resources can help you find nursing home care options and better understand your choices. AARP Nursing Home COVID-19 Dashboard. Track the COVID-19 cases, deaths, vaccination rates, and staffing shortages in your state's nursing homes via this monthly dashboard by the AARP Public Policy Institute in collaboration with the Scripps Gerontology Center at Miami University in Ohio, aarp.org slash nursing home dashboard. AARP Nursing Home Hub, explore AARP's extensive collection of news articles and advice columns on nursing home care in the U.S. AARP State Offices, see the nursing home reforms your AARP State Office is currently fighting on AARP's interactive caregiving map. 
aarp.org slash caregivingmap. AARP LTSS Choices Series, created by the AARP Public Policy Institute, the Long-Term Services and Support Choices Series aims to change the long-term care system so that it meets the needs of consumers and their families. Explore exports, blogs, videos, podcasts, and virtual convenings that identify immediate, intermediate, and long-term improvement. AARP.org slash L-T-S-S choices. And finally, AARP Foundation Litigation. The litigation team advocates for systemic nursing home changes in federal and state courts to advance the legal rights and interests of residents. See the team's current cases related to nursing homes, including one on intentional understaffing by an Illinois nursing home chain. AARP.org slash AARP dash foundation slash our dash work slash legal slash advocacy. And that concludes for nursing homes. Pandemic challenges haven't ended. A chronic worker shortage has blocked chances for reform and rebound by Emily Paulin. And in another small article, we have four questions to ask your doctor about your heart. Question, how's my blood pressure? Response, 40% of Americans don't know their blood pressure numbers and 64% don't know what those numbers mean. A 2019 survey found normal blood pressure is less than 120 over 80. If that top number is 120 to 129, that's elevated. If that top number is 130 or higher or the bottom number is above 80, that's considered high. Question, what are my target cholesterol numbers and how do I measure up? Response, a total cholesterol level under 200 is considered normal, but the best levels of heart-threatening low-density Lipoproteins, LDLs, and triglycerides depend on your age, gender, and whether you have other heart risks like diabetes. No wonder half the people with high cholesterol in a recent survey said they were confused about the best cholesterol levels for them and how to get there. Question, can you refer me to a dietitian? Response, 59% of heart doctors say nutrition can help improve health as much as medications do. But in a 2021 study, 71% of doctors admitted they refer fewer than 10% of their patients to a registered dietitian. If your doctor isn't helpful, you can search for a dietitian in your area through the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics at eatright.org. Question, is it time to see a cardiologist? Response, your primary care doctor will likely refer you to a cardiologist if you have serious risk factors for heart disease, but speak up and ask about one if you have a family history of heart disease or a condition called hereditary cardiac amyloidosis, where specific abnormal proteins build up in the heart and other organs. Morehouse's Onyewanyi recommends, and that is for questions to ask your doctor about your heart. And finally for today, state care facilities could face lawsuits. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments in November in a case that may decide whether millions of long-term care residents have the right to sue state-run nursing facilities in certain circumstances. The suit was brought by the family of an Indiana nursing home resident. 
It accuses his facility of violating his rights by over-medicating him, unlawfully moving him to different facilities, and not appropriately treating him for dementia. The state-run Health and Hospital Corps, which owns the facility, sought to dismiss the case, arguing that residents who depend on federal programs such as Medicaid can't sue the state over rights violations. The Supreme Court is expected to rule by the end of June, and that is state care facilities could face lawsuits. And that concludes today's reading of the AARP magazine. This has been Paula Ferguson for the Georgia Radio Reading Service. Thank you for listening to GARS. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. This program is intended for a print-impaired audience and is brought to you by Mind's Eye. Welcome to the Blindness and Disability News Hour from Mind's Eye Radio in Belleville, Illinois. This program covers the week of February 19th. 2023. Thanks for joining us this week. Hope everyone is doing well and enjoying this um, definitely unseasonably warm weather we're having. We have lots of interesting stories for you this week, so let's get right to work and see what we've got. Our first story this week comes from shape.com. Kane and Able Fitness is making the gym less intimidating for people with visual impairments. Plus, the most important exercises for people with visual impairments to add to their workout routine. And this is written by Kristen Guile, and it was published on January 25th. And in this case, Cain and Abel, Cain is spelled C-A-N-E. Little, uh, little pun there. In 2014, Evan Schwerbrock was living a pretty normal life for a 22-year-old. He recently graduated from college with a degree in health sciences, and he was working in the fitness industry, sharing his passion for strength training, staying active, and biomechanics. But during a recreational volleyball game, he realized that something was off with his vision. Quote, all of a sudden, the lights were messing with me, he recalls. After losing sight of the ball, he got hit in the face. Later, I threw the ball up to serve and completely lost sight of it, he says. I had to make my best guess as to when it was coming back down, and I barely hit it, unquote. Assuming it was a contact lens issue, Schwerbach made an appointment with an eye doctor and didn't worry too much. But the night before his appointment, while driving on a foggy highway, he could barely see two two feet in front of his car and was crawling along at barely 30 miles per hour, he says. It was at that point that he realized his vision issue was serious. His exam resulted in a diagnosis of Lieber Hereditary Optic Neuropathy, or LHON, a rare genetic disease that results in significant, permanent vision loss in both eyes, according to the Cleveland Clinic. Within two weeks of the first onset of symptoms, he was legally blind. But Schwerbrock didn't let his vision impairment keep him from doing what he loves, lifting weights and helping others start their strength training journey. In July of 2020, he took that passion one step further by creating Cane and Abel Fitness, an online resource of adaptive fitness information for people with visual impairments. Here's how Schwerbrock is making fitness more accessible for anyone with a visual impairment, plus his best gym advice for individuals with vision loss. How Kane and Able Fitness was born, 
After his LHON diagnosis, Schwerbrock attended a master's program for kinesiology in Chicago, near his sister, who was able to help him navigate the city and his new lifestyle, one that now involved a cane. Eventually, he moved to Alaska to work as a strength and conditioning coach for the United States Army. Along the way, it became clear that staying active, especially through strength training, was an essential part of his mental health, he says. Quote, I tried to make as little change as possible to my routine after my diagnosis, because the gym was my happy place, he explains. I adapted quickly to my new lifestyle because I just kept at it, unquote. In fact, after his disease had fully progressed into legal blindness, Schwerbrock began competing in strongman competitions, a weightlifting sport in which competitors complete a variety of strength-based tasks. He even won Strongest Man in Illinois for his weight class in 2019, a testament to his grit and the possibilities still ahead of him. Quote, I tried to make as little change as possible after to my routine after my diagnosis, because the gym was my happy place, and I adapted quickly to my new lifestyle, because I just kept at it. Unquote. During the COVID pandemic, Schwerbrock realized that the strategies he'd picked up for working out with a visual impairment needed to be shared with others, especially since he had fitness credentials and past experience working in weight rooms. In addition to having an MS in kinesiology, Schwerbrock is a NASM certified personal trainer, a certified strength and conditioning coach, and a functional movement specialist. Despite Schwerbrock's expertise, he says he felt that people still doubted his ability to strength train and assumed he couldn't do many exercises. Quote, I realized if I was getting questions so much, how much worse were other people being doubted who aren't 6'3 and 220 pounds and known for doing this stuff all the time, he says. What if they haven't been pursuing strength training for very long? How much are they being doubted, whether by themselves or by others, and how little do they know? Unquote. With that, Kane and Able Fitness was born in 2020. The website offers accessible, unintimidating information on strength training, mobility, nutrition, and more. And it's all delivered in a straightforward, encouraging way, without making the user feel babied or patronized, an important distinction to Schwerbrock. Today, Kane and Able Fitness has led accessibility-focused virtual workshops, seminars, and calls to organizations all over the world. Schwerbrock also offers consulting services for the visually impaired community on gym-specific adaptations. Think how to adjust exercises for visual impairments or plan workouts that don't use a ton of equipment, making it easier to set up in a crowded space. In addition, Kane and Able Fitness offers remote coaching for people with visual impairments, and they also regularly create free accessibility resources, such as workout programs or cooking tips for the community, on the Kane and Able Fitness blog and social media accounts. Best Fitness Tips for Those with Visual Impairment For someone with a visual impairment, working out, whether at a gym or at home, may feel intimidating at first, especially if they're new to fitness in the first place. 
Not to mention, quote, the lack of immediate accessibility and organization at a gym can be a really big issue, unquote, notes Schwerbrock. A crowded gym, a confusing layout, equipment strewn haphazardly across the floor, or re-racked incorrectly, or new machines can be extra difficult to navigate with a visual impairment, and potentially even unsafe. However, finding a regular movement practice, especially one that involves strength training, is crucial to staying healthy and being able to function independently with a visual impairment, says Schwerbrock. Here, Schwerbrock shares the best exercise tips for people with visual impairments. First, get acclimated to the gym's layout and equipment. To get beginners comfortable at the gym, Schwerbrock created a free gym acclimation course with documents and YouTube videos, all designed to demystify the space for people with visual impairments. In it, he offers best practices for exploring the gym and building independence when working out. His best advice for starting your gym exploration? Take a day to simply walk around the gym and note where things are, how equipment is organized, and what dumbbells, weight plates, and other common equipment is present, and whether it's easy to distinguish different sizes or weights by touch rather than by sight. It's also helpful to introduce yourself to the gym staff in case you need additional assistance, acclimating, or help throughout your time there. And his free gym acclimation course and other resources that we may mention later on in this article can be found at caneandablefitness.com. That's C-A-N-E-A-N-D-A-B-L-E Fitness. Dot com. Next, set up a home workout space. Working out at home can be more mentally accessible for people with visual impairments, if that's an option. Quote, since you're especially familiar with your environment, you're not as scared to move around, notes Schwerbrock. Plus, you're able to decide what organization of your space works best for your needs. Next, Prioritize posture exercises and lower body strength. While general strength training and movement are appropriate for most fitness routines, those with visual impairments need to focus on posture exercises and lower body training that directly counteract the lacking capacities that stem from sight loss. For example, people with visual impairments often need to train neck retraction, also known as pulling the head and neck back from a forward-leaning position. Neck extension, also known as tilting the head backward until the chin points up toward the sky. And the rhomboid muscles in the upper back. These muscles need extra attention because people with visual impairments might hunch forward more often, whether to physically get closer to a phone, book, or screen that they're reading, or because they're less likely to make eye contact as a social norm, and will have had their head down as they take in their environment, says Schwerbrock. People with visual impairments, especially those who use a cane, might also short-step to protect themselves from running into an obstacle. A short stride is a quad-dominant movement pattern that prevents hip extension, also known as opening the hip joint so the angle between the pelvis and thigh increases, glute engagement, and a full range of motion to the legs. 
To address these muscle imbalances, Schwerbrock programs Bulgarian split squats with a handhold or tool to assist with balance, as well as hip flexor stretches. Next, strengthen your mind-body connection. In addition, build your mind-body connection and learn how certain movement patterns feel when they're done correctly, advises Schwerbrock. Quote, tactile cues are huge without the ability to use mirrors or videos in check form, he emphasizes. Get used to how a squat should feel and how a hip hinge should feel and get used to those differences, unquote. Above all else, find a good support system that's willing to help you as you adjust to life without clear vision, but build your own independence at the same time, advises Schwerbrock. Quote, in the end, you're responsible for pursuing these avenues of fitness that help you take care of yourself, unquote, he says. And for more information and to take a look at his website, visit caneandablefitness.com. That's C-A-N-E-A-N-D-A-B-L-E fitness.com. And as we continue with this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let's listen to a uh, intriguing article here from visionaware.org, which is a blog site operated by the American Printing House for the Blind. This was posted on February 9th of 2023, Bioptic Driving. What is it and could it work for you? Are you someone with low vision and wondering if driving with bioptic lenses is possible? Discuss your eligibility with your eye care professional and state driver's license agency. If you are eligible, driving with low vision and bioptics is your decision. What is a bioptic lens system? According to Chuck Huss, quote, a bioptic lens system is a combination two-lens optical system with a telescope or telescopes attached to the lens of a pair of eyeglasses. The telescope is placed on the eyeglass lens just above one's normal line of sight. Optometrists or ophthalmologists who specialize in low vision will prescribe bioptic lenses, available in a number of styles, sizes, and powers. The prescription lenses help accommodate people who have known central vision loss. There are two types of bioptic lens systems, Galilean and Keplerian. How do bioptics help with driving? Most of the time, a low vision driver uses the main eyeglass lens, the carrier lens. When it is necessary to check detail or road hazards, the driver uses the miniature telescopic lens, but only intermittently. Driving with bioptic lenses requires distance viewing skills, object awareness skills, and basic bioptic usage skills. Most states require training before you can get a license to drive with the bioptic lens. Chuck Huss states that drivers with low vision must have the following. First, a stable, long-standing eye condition. Best corrected visual acuity between 2070 to 2200 inclusive. A field of view of 120 degrees horizontally, 80 degrees vertically. Enhanced acuity to 2080, um, pardon me, enhanced acuity to 2060 or better through the scope. 
And finally, color awareness to differentiate color change, lane markings, road signs, brake lights, turn signals, and emergency vehicles. Additional concerns about driving with low vision. Glare and contrast sensitivity both affect driving with low vision. Contrast sensitivity is your ability to detect differences between light and dark areas. Anne Rittering states, Increasing the contrast between an object and its background will generally make an object more visible. Usually, the strongest contrast is black on white and white on black. Seeing curbs and faded road surface markings are examples of low-contrast driving activities. And snow, fog, and rain also make visibility worse." Unquote. And join APH Vision Aware and presenters Chuck Huss and Steve Kelly for a webinar exploring driving with bioptics on February 28, 2023 at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can register for that webinar at aph.zoom.us. That's aph.zoom.us. And that's February 28th, 2023 at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, which is 2 p.m. Central Time for our local listeners. Let's continue this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour with a visit to blindnewworld.org, which is a blog site operated by the Perkins School for the Blind. And this week's story, The Irony of Being a Blind Sports Photographer. At only the age of 18, artist, international student, and blind man Max Fulham is well on his way to making his dream of being a professional sports photographer a reality. Photography, an inherently visual art, is a highly detailed, skilled art form. But, as many ask, how can you be a semi-professional in a visual art field when you're blind? Well, that's my story, a story I, story I will gladly share with you now. Before we get to the juicy elements, the real success story, a little bit about me. My name is Max Fulham. I'm an artist, an international student, and a blind man. I'm 18 years old, and I moved with my camera equipment from my home in Ireland to the Netherlands in the pursuit of two things, a Bachelor of Laws degree, or LLB, and a photography career covering field hockey. I was born with cataracts and quickly developed glaucoma. My right eye can only see hand movements from less than a meter or three feet away, and my left eye is 6 to 18 to 1. So, the right eye is pretty much useless, and the left eye is pretty damn good. I'm an artist, and I'm blind, and I suppose you wouldn't guess that those two go together to produce a semi-professional sports and event photographer. But, as I said, I only use one eye to look through the viewfinder. How it all started. The journey to the World Cup quarterfinal as a photographer started when I begged my ophthalmologist to approve my request to play rugby. It wasn't long before his team suggested that I retire. 
I wasn't very good at playing, but we were going through a bumpy part on the front or in the eye front, so I retired. Shortly after that, my father gifted me with my first digital camera when he saw that I was taking photos of Coco, our pet dog. I took photos at my school game and worked up to covering senior school cup games in hockey. My breakout season. The big jump, all thanks to Rob Abbott, he asked if I could cover the EYHL fixture, Glenane versus Lisna Garvey, a considerable step up from junior to schools. It spiraled from there, covering Hockey Ireland National League, or the EYHL, Irish Rugby AIL D1A Final, amongst others. The season taught me one thing, my true worth. It showed me that through all the struggles of dealing with visual impairment, it is not my disability that counts, but how we deal with it. We can find ways to adapt. We can find ways to strive. But what I achieved that year, being an official photographer for some Hockey Ireland events, regularly press-published, showed me that I am capable of whatever I set my mind to. But I won't lie, it's been a challenge. I have only one eye with useful vision, so when it is in use looking through the viewfinder, I have missed a few things, like flying hockey balls, sticks being thrown aside, etc. The Standout Moment In February of 2022, I was approved for the FIH Women's World Cup in Amsterdam. Everyone around me said it was a well-deserved achievement, but it wasn't until I was sitting on the side of the World Cup pitch with 11,000 supporters singing the Wilhelmus, the Dutch anthem, that I realized that this was the pinnacle of the sport that I love, a sport I've followed since 2018. Access to World Cups as media is a highly regulated and managed process. To achieve it after one year in domestic hockey is unusual. However, with perseverance and hard work, anything is possible. And so, how about my future? Since that standout moment, I've had the honor of covering the European Junior Championships and the Hoofdeklas. Currently, I have to balance my love of photography with education. I study international and European law at De Hagse Hogeschool. Currently, photography is a side job, a part-time moneymaker. But I do hope that one day, with perseverance and hard work, I will make it to full-time sports photography. And a few special mentions. I can't end this post without saying a special thank you to a few people who have helped me realize my potential in photography. A special thank you to my mom and dad, who instigated my start in photography, gifting me my first camera. My brother Michael, always offering critiques and help with connections. To my school staff in Mount Temple, who gave me the platform to start and to practice. Rob Abbott, who helped me with access to events and connections. Chris Steele and Robert Forrest, who helped me get out of class. To the admin and teaching staff for pushing me academically and never letting me miss a class. Without all that help I have received, I never would have made it to the top, top of hockey in Ireland and covered the world and regional championships. And the author, Max Fulham, can be reached and more can be discovered about him at his website, maxfulhamphotography.com or follow him on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
And the type of hockey that Max is referring to is not ice hockey, as known to North Americans, but field hockey. As we continue with this week's edition of the Blindness and Disability News Hour, let's talk tech for a little while as we visit Access World Magazine, a publication of the American Foundation for the Blind, and you can find them online at afb.org. And this is from the current issue of Access World Magazine, and part one of a series, Braille Codes and Characters, History and Current Use. And as I said just a moment ago, this is part one of a new series. This is written by Judy Dixon. And part one of this article will discuss the history of Braille codes in the United States, with particular emphasis on how Braille became usable with computers. This encompasses both Braille as it is set from a computer for embossing and Braille as it is read from a computer with a refreshable Braille display. How did the Braille codes change to make these things possible? Part two, we'll look at how Braille is used with screen readers on computers and mobile devices. What Braille codes are available to access the contents of a computer screen? And how do these codes make it possible for a Braille reader to pursue different tasks? Introduction To be a useful tool for reading and writing, Braille must be able to represent, to the extent possible and practical, the array of printed material that a blind person needs to pursue education, employment, hobbies, and all the other activities of everyday life. With only six dots in a Braille cell, representing the more than 10,000 print characters found in today's world has become a real challenge. The codes used to display this vast array of characters must be comprehensive and able to represent printed material accurately and completely. But the code must also be straightforward and understandable by the blind person using it. It would be a simple matter to devise a code representing thousands of characters, but making that code easier to learn and memorable is definitely not a simple matter. Technology has helped by increasing the number of dots available, but it has also significantly increased the complexity of material to be represented. Nevertheless, today, Braille users are reading literature, science, math, music, knitting patterns, computer programs, and much more, all in Braille. This article presents a brief history of the Braille codes in the United States and discusses how they are used to screen readers or used by screen readers on computers and mobile devices to provide Braille readers the greatest possible access to the vast world of print. Early Braille Codes in the U.S. For a couple of centuries, blind people only read Braille that was embossed on paper. Every Braille character had no more than six dots. There were only a few different Braille codes used to represent different languages. For the most part, there was one Braille code per language. Slowly, over time, the Braille codes used throughout the world evolved. In the United States, contracted or grade 2 Braille, much as we know it today, was adopted in 1932. A simpler form of Braille, grade 1.5, was commonly used until the middle of the 20th century. 
This grade of Braille had about 50 contractions. The Center for People with Disabilities Beyond Vision program provides peer support groups for people who are visually impaired or blind. Connect with members of your community, create new relationships, learn new skills and techniques, listen to guest speakers, and learn how to connect with local resources. Beyond Vision events are hosted monthly on the third Wednesday of every month at 1 p.m. and are accessed online through Google Meet. Upcoming topics by month include March, Blind Shell Classic 2. March, Blind Shell Classic 2. March, Blind Shell Classic 2. To attend an event, you may RSVP by emailing beyondvision at cpwd.org or by calling 720-526-2804. Again, that is 720-526-2804. Once registered, you will receive a link or call-in information to join through your computer, tablet, or phone. Space is limited, so please RSVP as soon as possible. If you are unable to make the sessions, but you want to get connected with a skills trainer, request an accommodation, or find more information, please contact Estefania Corral by emailing estefania at cpwd.org or by calling 720-526-2804. That number again is 720-526-2804. the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, this is the news from rural America. There are still more questions than answers in the East Palestine, Ohio train derailment. Some residents are taking legal action against Norfolk Southern, and the state has opened a health clinic. Residents like Jamie Kosa report troubling symptoms they believe are linked to the hazardous chemical release. And it has even gotten into my clothes that were in the dryer. Your nose would burn, your mouth, your eyes. Initially, the EPA screened 300 homes without finding any trace of toxic chemicals. Amanda Tiger with River Valley Organizing encourages residents to sign up for independent soil and water testing. Many folks have been forced back home and they don't believe it's safe. They want answers. They want good, concise, clear answers. An Oregon law requires that public schools teach sexual abuse prevention to students, but resources to increase adults' awareness can be scarce. That's where the Protect Our Children program comes in. Anya Slepian has more. Over the past eight years, the program has trained well over 10,000 Oregonians. A main goal is to disrupt the culture of silence, which prevents families and communities from having frank conversations about the difficult topic. Here's Director Mary Ratliff. The way we talk about child sexual abuse sometimes can inhibit kids from disclosure. Adults are encouraged to use direct language when referring to body parts and incorporate routines that promote consent, like asking a child if they can be hugged instead of assuming or forcing physical contact. 90% of these instances occur with someone who the family and the child trust. Ratliff says changing how we talk about bodily autonomy is critical to helping both children and adults prevent, detect, and respond to instances of child sexual abuse. I'm Anya Slepian. In Oklahoma, the Cherokee Nation was the first in the country to receive a federal grant to start a harm reduction program for intravenous drug users. The nation also has its first live-in shelter to help survivors of domestic violence. Deb Proctor with One Fire Victim Services says the facility offers temporary food and quarters for up to 10 families. 
This gives them an opportunity for anywhere from a month to an extended period just to get their life back on track. The program serves anyone in need within the tribe's 14-county jurisdiction. Proctor says they saw 800 clients in their non-residential program last year, double the year before. You can see just by the numbers that the need has grown just exponentially. For the Daily Yonder and Public News Service, I'm Roz Brown. For more rural stories, visit dailyyonder.com. Did you know AINC offers time and weather services on our regular phone menu? Just call 303-786-7777 extension 5 for your local time and weather report. No internet needed.